what up Cavs Nation, I'm your host Ethan Sands and I'm back with another episode of the Wine and Gold Talk Podcast. We got a special episode for you guys today as I'm joined by your favorite beat reporter, Chris Fedor. What up Chris? Ethan, what's going on man? How are you? Man, I'm doing great. I'm excited for today's episode because also hopping on the pod today is Cleveland.com's columnist Jimmy Watkins. Jimmy, how you feeling today? I just ate too much Chinese food, but other than that, I'm hanging in there. <laughs> What's the go-to spot for Chinese these days? I'm about to say, put us on. It's funny. I'm in. I'm an indie for the combine. So oh, there you go. This is my first night here. There will be some big dinners here. I would not constitute uh, China King as one of the big dinners, but it was a big dinner in my room. What are you doing? Like, here's the thing: if you're gonna be on the road. You have to do it right on the road. And you can't be getting chain stuff that you could get in Ohio. You have to get stuff that is Indianapolis-based. Come on. China King? What are you doing? That's right down the street from me. They can't all be St. Elmo, Chris. They can't all be St. Elmo. Well, they can be St. Elmo one night. They can be Iaria another night. I mean, I can keep going. All right, you need to text me once we get off the <laughs> I'm embarrassed now. Yeah, I got you with the indie spots. There's no doubt about that. I'm extremely surprised that wasn't the first person you hit up because I know we hype up a new podcast that Cleveland.com has got going on about food and drinks and things in the Cleveland area. But me and Chris been traveling our whole lives and Chris especially is on the road a whole lot. So he knows all the spots. We were in the media room the other day and Chris was going through a list of places, just listing things <laughs> from all different kinds of states and cities. And I was like, dog, how do you remember every restaurant you've been through since 2016? It doesn't make sense. That is one of the things around the Cavs that I'm known for. Before every game, when I go out on the court and I do my networking and I talk to the people that I talk to, either players, agents, coaches, executives, the first thing that they say when they see me is, all right, where was lunch today? Where was dinner yesterday? Because they know. They know that I got all the spots, and they know that I love to eat, so I'm not going to skimp on that. Freaking China King. Did you at least get something good? What'd you get? I got uh, lo mein and some general sows. All right. That's decent. <laughs> I was recoiling. I didn't know if that was going to be approved or not. <laughs> All right, guys, this is a food podcast now. No, I'm just kidding. It can be. Anytime you want to talk food, I'm here. Let's go. There are a few things in life that I love more than eating. Well, I guess I got to let the fans know why today is supposed to be a special episode. And no, it's not about discussing which Chinese restaurant Jimmy should have been to in Indianapolis. But this episode calls for the two of the best analysts in the game who have been around Cleveland sports for a good minute now. To put it short and sweet, Kyrie Irving is returning to Cleveland for the first time since 2022 when he was with the Brooklyn Nets. And the question keeps coming up on my timeline about who is the second best player in Cavs franchise history? Because I think we can all agree that LeBron James takes that number one spot without a shadow of a doubt. So I ran a little poll with our subtext subscribers to get their thoughts of who is the second best Cavalier of all time. And I want to get your thoughts on what they had to say. And then we'll get into each of your individual takes. So based on this poll, with over 35% of the votes, Donovan Mitchell was deemed the second best player of all time in just his second season with the Cavs. 
Third was Mark Price. Fourth was Kyrie Irving. Fifth was Brad Doherty. And sixth was Austin Carr. Chris, let's start with you. What do you think of how the poll came together? I'm sorry. Kyrie was fourth? So if LeBron was first, it goes LeBron, then Donovan Mitchell, then Mark Price, then Kyrie Irving. So the answer is yes, he was fourth in this poll. To borrow a line from LeBron James, you know, you see what happens when you you open up voting to the public. You get some goofy votes. Like, I get it. People in Cleveland have a hard time admitting the brilliance of Kyrie, the impact of Kyrie, the greatness of Kyrie, because of the way that everything... But, like, at some point, you just have to accept the fact that while he was here, the things that he did for this organization are unmatched by anybody else not named LeBron James. And that doesn't change just because he's quirky. And that doesn't change because he brought Sage to Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse and saged the whole arena before one of the games where he played as a member of the Brooklyn Nets. And and that doesn't change because he ultimately demanded a trade and broke up what was looking like a dynasty and ultimately had a role in LeBron James leaving the Cavs for a second time and going to the Los Angeles Lakers. All right, Jimmy, let me know what's on your mind about this list. Fourth. What are we doing? Fourth is crazy. I was thinking like the Mitchell thing doesn't surprise me that much because I like I see the recency bias. I could see prisoner of the moment. You're really excited about this current team. But then Mark Price comes in third. So I I don't know. I love Mark Price and I grew up a Mark Price fan. That's right. That's (laughs) right. How could you not? By the way, Mark Price enters the league in 2016. He might be a little bit higher on this list. He had a game tailor made for the modern age. But I I do think this is going to be I think Chris and I are going to have a little showdown later on. But I'll, I'll say this. The fact that Kyrie, the way it ended, it does not invalidate everything he did before then. But I do think it can color your opinion of his legacy a little bit because, I mean, he's so, so entertaining to watch. He's one of the most skilled players. Of, I mean, people talk about his ball hailing all the time. To, to me, it's his use of English and his use of angles off the backboard below the room finishing is really what stands out for me. It's something to appreciate about that guy and just the balance, not not just the, the dribble moves he could pull off, but the balance it takes to pull all those off and then stop on a dime and pull up. Like you have to marvel at him, but like the way it ended was ugly. And the way I would, I wrote about this for the website in the morning. It's just striking to me how differently he handled his exit and how it appears. We don't know whether he'll even exit yet. Like if we're presuming that Donovan might test the water somewhere else, it doesn't look like that right now. Like he, he basically, he t- he addressed it before the season when Chris asked about it at media day. And then every time it gets brought up after that, he's like, Hey man, no disrespect, but like, I'm trying to stay focused on the moment, which is, that's like the perfect way to handle it. And then Kyrie had a perfect situation coming off three straight finals runs. And he kind of went looking for trouble requesting a trade and I know that's kind of a tangled web because I think he thought that they were going to try to trade him anyways or something like that my memory is a little skittish on that but that can color your perception of him a little bit it doesn't invalidate it but it does color the perception why did you consider it trouble why did you use that term that he went out looking for trouble that is a good question like <laughs> greener pastures like he went looking for something better when he already had a good situation but what's wrong with that I guess nothing. I guess it depends on what you want. Okay. It depends on what you want. But like we are conditioned, like I'm trying to put myself in fan shoes. Sure. If you're a fan 
and one of your favorite players has been in the finals three straight times, like it does not fit your logistical calculation that that guy would be unhappy enough to request a trade. That's where trouble comes into the equation here. All right. So I want to address that really quick because I think that's an interesting point and I can understand to a point where fans are coming from. But these are human beings. These are human beings that we cover on a daily basis. They all have their own story. They all have their own desires. And for somebody like Kyrie, and I've used this analogy in the past, I equate it to, and I'm not saying I'm Kyrie, but I'm trying to use a real life example here so that people can understand ambition desire, trying to take the next step in your career. So I did radio for 10 years here in Cleveland. I was part of the highest rated show in the market, but I wasn't on the marquee, right? It was me and two other people. And I didn't get in the business to be the third wheel. And that might sound selfish, or that might sound mean spirited or whatever the case may be. Like I got in this business to do my own show. Like that was my dream when I came out of broadcasting school, was to have my own radio show, to have my name on the marquee. And despite the fact that I was part of the best show in the market, and I had a lot of fun, and it was a great show, I went looking for a different opportunity. That company sent me to Milwaukee. I talked to the program director there in Milwaukee, and I was looking at it as an opportunity to further my career. I was looking at it as... I believe that I'm in my prime. I believe that I want to see if I'm ready for this. I want to see if I can do this on my own because that's ultimately what I always wanted. And for somebody like Kyrie, like he was the man in Cleveland. He was the guy who had to come in and in a way replace LeBron James at a very, very dark point in the franchise. And he had a lot of success individually. And then when LeBron came back, He had a lot of success from a team perspective, but I think he always looked at it and said, can I do more? Like, can I lead my own team? And whether he was right or wrong in his assessment, he owed it to himself to try and find out, can I lead my own team? Like, can I reach a different level in my career that I'm not going to get to here in Cleveland playing in the shadow of LeBron? And I have no problem with somebody having that level of ambition and somebody wanting to test themselves in that kind of way. So that's my perspective on the whole situation, that we shouldn't frown on guys when they're in the prime of their career and they want something more for themselves. I think that's a a great point. And I did overlook the storyline where people would be asking Kyrie questions like, what kind of father figure is LeBron? Like, it got weird. It got really weird. And so, like, he was in LeBron's shadow to an extreme extent. So I think you made, that's a great analogy you just made, Chris. What I would say to that is, would you now expect to be considered one of the top three employees of that radio station of all time? That's my question. Because <laughs> that's what we're talking about. Well, I mean, there are other guys that have gotten there over the last 10 years that have certainly done some really, really good things. Maybe like a Donovan Mitchell type. Maybe, but they've been doing it a little bit longer than Donovan Mitchell. It's not like they got there and they spent one year after I was there and all of a sudden bumped me from the marquee or something along those lines. But do I can probably not. I probably don't consider myself that because I wasn't there long enough and I didn't like I was kind of at that time a small fish in a big pond rather than a big fish in a small pond. 
So no, I don't think I don't think I'm on the the Mount Rushmore of that radio station. Who knows? That way, maybe a subtext question for another day. <laughs> I think we also just found out why Chris doesn't like Milwaukee. <laughs> <laughs> That was a little nugget in there. If subtexters or whoever listens to this needs to go back, rewind, and listen to that, he might have gave you a little blueprint as to why. They said it. They they offered me my own show. They said, we're going to make you the face of the radio station. And I said, it's just not for me. The city right now is just not for me. I just started a relationship with my now wife. So I would have had to move away from that. I wouldn't have her. I wouldn't have Elliot. So it all worked out the way that it probably needed to, and it was probably meant to. But I said thanks, but no thanks when, you know, I took a tour of the city and all that kind of stuff. And no offense to Milwaukee, but I'm very, very comfortable here in Cleveland, Ohio, around my family. And this is where I was born and raised, and I've been here my entire life. So there was still a tug, like... The heartstrings were pulling toward Cleveland while the ambitious side of me was pulling toward Milwaukee. Sometimes you got to stick with the place that gave you your first shot, but that's not what Kyrie Irving did. And I also think we have to point out, like we've talked about him playing with LeBron James. We've talked about the media and all these fans talking about a father figure. Like it is difficult to play in the shadow of somebody after you have been playing at the highest level, you were like one of the highest recruits out of high school, went to Duke, played 12 games, then got drafted number one overall. You come and do what you said you were going to do. And then this guy who is arguably the greatest player of all time in the history of the sport comes back to what you have already been working towards and just takes over, takes over the ship. Is now the captain of the ship. And as much as, He wanted to try and make it Kyrie's team as much as he was trying to keep Kyrie involved. That simply doesn't happen when you understand what LeBron James brings to every single opportunity that he's given. And Kyrie is somebody that still, even with all of that going on, even with how much that could have affected his mental health and things of that nature, was still able to have one of the clutchest shots, if not the clutchest shot in Cavs history, and was also able to contribute on a nightly basis and has also continued to become one of the best ball handlers that we've talked about in length on this podcast. And look, he wasn't just in the shadow of somebody here. He was in the shadow of LeBron freaking James, Cleveland's prodigal son, right? Arguably the greatest player of all time. Like there was nothing that Kyrie Irving could have done to make it his team at that particular time. And that's ultimately what he wanted out of his career. He wanted to test himself in a different kind of way. And the opportunities that he got in Boston, whether he succeeded or failed, he was not going to get in Cleveland as long as LeBron James was here. All right, guys. I think that's a great point to take a break, but I got to put our subscribers on to something new. For our listeners, if you like food and drinks and who doesn't, and you don't want to get that from our podcast, Cleveland.com is breaking new ground with our lively new podcast about dining and drinking in the greater Cleveland area. The hosts talk about the latest foodie happenings, joined by the most in-the-know experts in town. It's called Dine, Drink, C-L-E, and you can find it anywhere you download podcasts. Give it a listen, quench your thirst, and feed that appetite. 
when we come back to the Wine and Gold Talk podcast, we're going to take a look at how the Cavs stack up against the Mavericks and what Kyrie adds to that roster. But before that, become a Cavs insider and interact with me and Chris by subscribing to Subtext. Sign up for a 14-day free trial or visit cleveland.com backslash Cavs and click on the blue bar at the top of the page. If you don't like it, that's fine. All you have to do is text the word stop. It's easy, but we can tell you that the people who sign up stick around because this is the best way to get insider coverage on the Cavs from Chris and me. We'll be right back. All right, we're back. Before we get into the Cavs and Mavericks game that's scheduled for Tuesday night, I think it's fair to try and understand if there's enough evidence in his second season with the Cavs that Donovan Mitchell could be the second best Cavalier of all time. Chris, what are your thoughts on this? So I think this is complicated, guys. I do, because I think the one thing that we can say is that peak Donovan Mitchell, the talent level of Donovan Mitchell, and the way that he has played in his short time here in Cleveland, that level, individually, and from a team perspective, if we're being honest, is probably not one that Kyrie reached in any particular season. Maybe there's an argument for 2014, 2015, when he was third-team All-NBA, but third-team All-NBA is very different than what Donovan was last year when he was definitely in the running for first-team All-NBA, and he was an Eastern Conference starter, and he was sixth in MVP voting. So peak Donovan Mitchell, so far in his time with the Cavs, Jimmy, has been better than peak Kyrie. But Kyrie did it like every single year that he was with the Cavs. And it didn't last as long as people wanted it to. It was just six seasons in Cleveland, like multiple all-star appearances. Rookie of the year. Like I said, third team All-NBA. Like having that sustained level of impact and that sustained level of individual brilliance over that time, to me... That means more in this conversation than a year and a half of peak Donovan Mitchell. Although what we've seen from Donovan has been absolutely fantastic. The Cavs couldn't have asked for anything more when they made that trade for him. I think it's a matter of word choice, honestly. It's the difference between greatest and best. Like greatest is everything you're talking about, building a resume over a long span, measure accomplishments like championships and, and playoff success and things and things of that nature. Whereas best can just be like, it's it's kind of like we're with Patrick Mahomes right now. Is he the greatest quarterback in the NFL of all time? No. But is he the best one I've ever seen? Pretty sure. You know, no disrespect to Tom Brady and all those Super Bowls. It's a, it's a you know it when you see it kind of deal. And the numbers back it up, man. Like, Donovan's a higher volume scorer, granted on higher usage and, not, and more shot attempts, but higher volume scorer, the more efficient scorer. Both of those things while being at the top of scouting reports, being the engine of an offense, uh, engine of a 50-win team. Before he got here, not much of a history without LeBron for this franchise. I mean, it's last year, I believe, was the fourth 50-win season without LeBron in franchise history. This year, they're heading for for a fifth. I mean, that potentially could be, depending on where I think the franchise record without LeBron is 57 wins back with the Lenny Wilkins era. But we're, we're talking about, like, this guy's putting teams on, like, the all-time franchise list. Again, removing LeBron from the equation, which is not a very fun thing to do because that's that's most of where the history comes from. So I just, I value, I don't know how to quantify that in a greatest conversation. It's probably an incomplete, 
to be honest with you. But I do think that there is a difference. We can say Kyrie is a greater Cleveland Cavalier than Donovan Mitchell, but Donovan Mitchell is a better basketball player to have worn the jersey. Kyrie's also made the most important shot in franchise history. And the, and the thing that you said about Donovan, and I think this is where it's hard with Kyrie, because at the time that Kyrie got to be in the Donovan Mitchell role, right? His team, everybody revolved around him. Kyrie wasn't physically ready for that. He wasn't professionally ready for that. He was 19, 20, 21 years old. You know what I mean? And once he finally got to that level where you were like, okay, this guy can be the driver. This guy can be the MVP type player. That didn't happen here in Cleveland. LeBron came back and Kyrie became the number two. Now, you know, part of what allowed him at times to have success is that he didn't have all eyeballs on him. He didn't have the full attention of the defense. He had somebody like LeBron James to take pressure off of him. So he wasn't like the top name on the opposing scouting report, right? But like, we didn't get to see Kyrie in that particular role that we've seen Donovan in at the time that Kyrie was actually ready for it. Because at the time that Kyrie was finally ready for it, he had a number of games underneath his belt. He had plenty of experience throughout the NBA. It seemed like the team was starting to take positive steps in the win-loss record, and maybe possibly they were going to be a playoff team. At that point, when it seemed like Kyrie was ready for that, that's when LeBron came and bumped him to Robin as opposed to Batman. Now, we've seen Kyrie in the high usage role, in the engine of the offense role, in the guy who is at the center of everything. It just didn't happen here in Cleveland. So it's hard to judge that aspect of the two. Yeah, Chris, you give me flashbacks to the Andrew Bynum signing right there. That was, that was a fun <laughs> one for a minute. The, the other complicating thing about Kyrie as as offensive engine for, from the Cavs perspective is like, Yes, you get to see it when LeBron's off the floor, but like every LeBron team ever has had this thing where they can't play with LeBron off the floor. And I think it's because LeBron is is such a singular for like everything you do, whether you're playing basketball next to him or you're running a team around him, revolves around him. That when you take him out of that equation, particularly in like such small sample sizes as like, you know, half a quarter here or even if he rests for three or four games here, like it's not like a real environment. You have to like relearn how to play non-LeBron basketball because he does so many things for you that it's hard to put those responsibilities back on people's plates. I mean, it was a LeBron-centric thing to the point where some of the guys that were brought in that were theoretical fits around LeBron just didn't want to be here. Because they're like, I don't want to stand in the corner and just wait for catch-and-shoot opportunities. Jay Crowder comes to mind, and you can sit here and say, well, Jay Crowder stinks, and he got what was coming to him or whatever. But it just shows, like, it can be complicated for certain guys. It can also be a huge benefit for other guys to play alongside LeBron James. Ask Matthew Delvadova about it. Ask Timofey Mozgov about it. Ask some of these other guys that LeBron had quite a role in getting paid. But in saying that, like, even if you go back to those finals years, I think the way that it was phrased by the front office on the record was essentially like, yeah, it was guys brought in to fit around this particular group. And they did a really good job at identifying those guys. Richard Jefferson, Channing Frye, Kyle Korver, James Jones, Mike Miller. They were all LeBron guys. They weren't Kyrie guys. Like the idea behind those acquisitions, it wasn't about, okay, let's put the best possible team around Kyrie Irving. 
right? It was let's put the best possible team around LeBron James. And the byproduct of that, of course, was four straight finals appearances. So it's hard to quibble with that. But if you're Kyrie, you're like, I have guys that I think I would play alongside really, really well. Any chance that maybe possibly you want to bring some of those guys in that that benefit my game? And maybe the front office was saying, hey, the guys that we brought in benefit your game too. But the decision making was all predicated on what was best for a LeBron James led offense, not a Kyrie Irving led offense. Kyrie Irving's ambition a little bit more understandable than Jay Crowder's. That's my takeaway. <laughs> yes, I would say so. Like, again, that was just one example of a guy who was completely miserable in the role that he was put in. But yes, your point is well taken. And speaking of Kyrie Irving getting to join with players that he compliments well, the Cavs host the Mavericks on Tuesday night. And the last time they played, both Donovan Mitchell and Kyrie Irving were unavailable for their respective teams due to illness or injury. And now, with both of these stars healthy, it'll allow for a new matchup dynamic that we haven't seen yet this season. The Cavs are trying to get back into their groove from before the All-Star break as they won one of their last three contests, but that doesn't take away from them having the best record in the NBA since January 1st. Chris, what do you think about this matchup, and what do you feel the Cavs need to do to be successful? I hate always saying, Ethan and and Jimmy, that, you know, they're barometer-type games for a team like the Cavs, but, like, look, if there's something that, that naysayers are wondering about when it comes to the Cavs, well, I think there are a few things that they're wondering about the Cavs. But one of the things that they're wondering about is, okay, how does this team deal with quality opponents? Because we have seen them completely decimate teams below 500. They are 24-2 and two against teams below 500. That means 24 of their 37 wins have come against that caliber opponent. But like, I think the thing that people wonder about this team is, can they beat the likes of Boston and Milwaukee and the 76ers and the Knicks and the Dallas Mavericks on the opposite side, 33 and 24, right? And and I think the exciting thing about the Cavs coming down the stretch is there are a lot of those kinds of tests waiting for them. There are a lot of those caliber opponents waiting for them. So I'm not going to sit here and say what happens on February 27th against the Dallas Mavericks on the first game of back-to-back is going to change my opinion of what the Cavs can be and what they can accomplish this year. I think that's going way too far. But there is part of me that wants to continue to see how the Cavs handle these kinds of matchups against these caliber opponents. Because this is something that they haven't been as good at as some of the other teams in the Eastern Conference that we want to lump them in with. Like Boston against teams 500 and above, 23 and 11. Milwaukee against teams 500 and above, 19 and 13. The Indiana Pacers against teams 500 and above, 16 and 16. The Cavs, 13 and 17. So I think I'm wondering, and I think other people are wondering, okay, can they continue to compete with those teams Because that's ultimately what's going to separate them when it comes to how far they can go in the Eastern Conference. I would just say I see a few like playoff opponent facsimile qualities in the Mavericks. Like I see Luka, I see a big ball handler who shoots a lot of step back threes. Jason Tatum, same guy. 
same guy by archetype in, in that regard. Jason Tatum is nowhere near the playmaker that, that Luka is. But that kind of challenge is something of a playoff preview. The spacing that Dallas has, especially since they acquired P.J. Washington, and now that they have Josh Green's playing a little bit better as well, that's Indiana Pacers. That's offense coming at you. You have to cover every inch of the floor, account for every shooter on the court. And I mean, like, we're talking about defense is not even what we should necessarily be focused on with the Cavs. We know, like, last year the playoff defense wasn't the issue. I'm not really worried about that. I mean, I guess maybe we have... We, we want might want to see a little bit more of it if we're going to keep seeing these four around one lineups because the, the Mobley Allen defensive pairing can be something of a cheat code at times. I just think that those are qualities that the Mavericks share with potential teams that the Cavs might have to see in the playoffs down the road. So if you're watching those games, that's that's something to pay attention to. Yeah, I mean, the Mavericks are averaging about 119 points per game. So the Cavs are going to have to show that you know, the offensive rhythm that they found in, in the six-week stretch from mid-December to late January is something that is real, is something that can continue. It hasn't been that way since the All-Star break, but that's what's going to be required tomorrow night against Luka, Kyrie, and all of that firepower that the Mavericks have, including maybe this year's sixth man of the year and Tim Hardaway Jr. off the bench. Six man showdown. Is this, will this game play a role in the in the voting too much from now? Yeah. And guys, the internet kind of went nuts when the Mavericks traded for Kyrie. Similarly to when the Clippers went and got James Harden, with the main point being that there's only one basketball, and these teams now have stars that are ball dominant. What were your initial reactions to the Kyrie to the Mavs move, and how it is working out? For perspective, the Mavericks have won seven of their last eight contests and are currently sitting in the eighth seed in the Western Conference, but there's only half a game separating them from the fifth-seeded Sacramento Kings entering Monday night when we're recording this episode. I thought it was great. I thought it was exactly what the Mavericks needed, somebody that could take pressure off of Luka, somebody that could take the attention of the defense away from Luka. And I think they're still figuring out how to best complement one another. But in a seven-game series, that's a big challenge for any opponent. Like, it takes a lot to guard Kyrie in a seven-game playoff series. Ask Clay Thompson about it, right? Ask, at times, Andre Iguodala. At times, Draymond Green. Like, there are so many different facets to Kyrie's game on the offensive end that just creates havoc for an opposing defense. And there are only so many defenders that you have within your roster that you feel comfortable putting on Kyrie, right? So if one of those defenders is going to be on Kyrie for a majority of the game, then do you have another one for Luka, right? Do you have another one for Tim Hardaway Jr.? So I've always been a proponent of as much ball handling, as much playmaking, as much three-level scoring, as much guys who can just break down a defense at any given moment, as many of those guys that you can get on the court at the same time in a seven-game series, the better you're going to be. Because in a seven-game series, you're playing against the same opponent. They know your stuff. They're calling out your plays. It comes down to sometimes, can you beat the guy in front of you consistently? And no matter how good the defender is, Kyrie Irving, chances are, is going to be able to beat that guy consistently, especially if it's not the best defender on the other team, because the best defender on the other team is occupied with Luka. Or if you're going to put your best defender on Kyrie, now your second best defender is on Luka. 
And it's just like so hard to construct a defensive game plan to try and take away both of those guys or try and put the kind of attention on those guys that they both demand while at the same time dealing with the other ancillary pieces that Dallas has that really complement the skill set of Kyrie and Luca Well. So I think they're still trying to figure it out. Guys have been in and out of the lineup. Kyrie has been in and out of the lineup, but they're 33 and 24 and they've got one of the best offenses in the NBA and they are going to be a load for any team in a seven game series because you got to beat that duo four times in seven tries. And that is not easy, especially when we're talking about playoff Kyrie and we've seen playoff Kyrie before. It's pretty ironic given all of Kyrie's different stops and given how badly he wanted a change of scenery when he did play next to LeBron. He plays next to a guy who plays a lot like LeBron right now. I mean, Luca is a, like, in the half court, slow, methodical chess player, seeing the game, you know, he wants to have the ball in his hands and kind of watch the defense unfold in front of him. So, I mean, if anyone knows how to make that work, it is Kyrie, right? (laughs) Right. I mean, it's not a situation where the Cleveland thing did not work between LeBron and Kyrie. Like, that was the most formidable duo in the NBA until... KD went to the Golden State Warriors and teamed up with Steph Curry. So the Kyrie-LeBron thing worked at the highest level. And I have no doubt that the Kyrie-Luka thing can work at the highest level. I agree. I think this was a great acquisition for them. And it's only the beginning. It's only about how happy Kyrie is going to be with the Dallas organization to want to stay there. But I think I've only heard positive things about Dallas and especially with how they've run the operation over there for the last couple of years. And especially with Mark Cuban, like they seem like a place that Kyrie would be happy staying with. I don't know if we're talking about for the remainder of his career, especially because we've seen a couple of times Luka and Nikola Jokic joking around about the possibility of teaming up. But I think that tandem is dangerous, as you mentioned, Chris. But I also think they enjoy playing with each other when they get to be on the court together. Like, they get to facilitate to each other. And then you also get to see them cheer each other on on the bench. Like, you just get to watch one of the other best ball handlers, one of the best other playmakers in the league just go at it on a night-to-night basis. I mean, happiness is a fickle mistress, right? And if Luka continues to go to the playoffs over and over and over again, and he loses in the first round, or he loses in the second round, and he sees his buddy Jokic competing for championships, and he looks around the NBA, and he sees some of these other guys like Giannis and Joel Embiid, whoever it may be, competing for championships and going places where he hasn't been able to go. Like at some point, he might get to a place where he says, maybe there's a better basketball related situation out there for me. Maybe it's not going to happen in Dallas. And if that's the conclusion that he comes to, I don't think anybody should fault him for that. I think these guys owe it to themselves to maximize their careers and do the things that ultimately make them the happiest. And if it's under the umbrella of I'm trying to do what's best for me while at the same time enhancing my career and cementing my legacy, then I have no problem with that. I don't think Luca's at that point yet. I don't think he needs to be at that point yet. But LeBron hit a point where he said, I've given the Cavs everything that I could give them. I don't feel like we can get past Boston. I don't feel like we can get past the Orlando Magic. And he said, 
you know, if I want to further my career, I've got to go somewhere else to make that happen. And he ended up in Miami and he learned how to be a champion and he saw it from a different lens and he failed without the excuses of my team wasn't good enough. I don't have enough players around me that can help me compete for championships. Like when he went to Miami and he basically handpicked Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh, like he couldn't put the blame on them the way that he did Sasha Pavlovich and Antoine Jameson and some of the other guys here in Cleveland. Like the failures of those finals, especially against the Dallas Mavericks, I feel like that caused LeBron James to look in the mirror and accept a level of responsibility that he probably was never going to accept in Cleveland because in Cleveland, it wasn't him. <laughs> in Cleveland, it was everybody else. And he was right to think that. But when you're playing alongside Bosch and Wade and you still fail, like you got to be like, hey, man, what did I do wrong here? And I think that enhanced his career. And if, if that happens with Luca, if that happens with another star player, then so be it. Donovan Mitchell. Yeah, the interesting thing about Luca in this discussion is that I don't, I'm trying to think. Luca, Joel, Giannis, I don't think we've had a foreign superstar request a trade that I'm thinking of top. We don't have as many. Dirk didn't. Now, the other thing is the, all these guys were drafted to good situations. So that's part of it. But I wonder if there's like something about the cultural differences there. I'm just, this is a big galaxy brain take here. No, I don't think it is. They're more loyal to their national teams, right? Like, even after a deep playoff run, I think Luca's more likely to try to go help Slovenia every year than some of the American guys are. I don't know if there's anything to that. I mean, I think there is because of AAU basketball. Like, the way that some of these guys operate, the power that they expect to have, the way that they approach free agency and trade demands and stuff, it feels very AAU-y to me. And it does feel like some of these international players are more apt to say, Put an obstacle in front of me, and I'm going to do it with these guys. I'm not going to leave to find a different place. I'm going to find a way. I'm going to work the problem as it is. So I do think there's something to that, Jimmy. I think that's a salient point. Also feels like, based on what the commish said at All-Star Weekend, that he's not a huge fan of that. Of what? Well, Adam Silver was talking about the youth basketball culture at All-Star Weekend, and it's just... It's not great. I don't remember exactly what he said, but it sounds like they're trying to change uh, American basketball culture from the roots up. It's a little entitled-y. All right. With that being said, that'll wrap up today's episode of the Wine and Gold Talk podcast. But remember to become a Cavs insider and interact with Chris and me by subscribing to Subtext. Sign up for a 14-day free trial or visit cleveland.com backslash Cavs and click on the blue bar at the top of the page. If you don't like it, that's fine. All you have to do is text the word STOP. It's easy, but we can tell you that the people who sign up stick around because this is the best way to get insider coverage on the Cavs from me and Chris. This isn't just our podcast. It's your podcast. And the only way to have your voice heard is through subtext. Y'all be safe. We out.